You're listening to the Thesis Review Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Wellick. I'm a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Washington. My research focuses on machine learning, natural language processing, and structure prediction. On the Thesis Review, I'll interview researchers from around the field, centering the conversation around their PhD thesis. In addition to exploring the technical content, this will give insight into their history as a researcher, allow us to revisit older ideas, and provide a valuable perspective on how their research and the field itself has evolved since their PhD days. My guest today is Tomasz Mikolov, who is a senior researcher at the Czech Institute of Informatics, Robotics, and Cybernetics in Prague. His research has covered topics in natural language understanding and representation learning, including the influential word-to-vec method, and recently his work has focused on complexity. Tomasz's PhD thesis is titled Statistical Language Models Based on Neural Networks, which he completed in 2012 at the Birno University of Technology. We start with his early interests in AI and how interest in compression led to his work in language modeling, and discuss his work in the thesis, which used recurrent neural networks for language modeling at a time when n-gram models were dominant. From there, we talk about the backstory behind Word2Vec and move to his recent work on complexity and cellular automata. The thesis review is available on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, and be sure to follow us on Twitter at Thesis Review. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can make a one-time donation at buymeacoffee.com slash thesis review, or become a recurring supporter at patreon.com slash thesis review. There are links to the thesis and the papers that we mentioned in the show notes. Here's Tomasz Mikolov with Statistical Language Models Based on Neural Networks on the Thesis Review. So in the introduction to your thesis, you discuss different paths towards intelligence. Do you think that ultimately it'll be easier to build intelligence or to build some kind of process that yields intelligence, like an open-ended process? Uh, well, I would say that pretty much all of my life I did uh, believe in the second option, like that uh, intelligence is more like a byproduct of uh, something um, like kind of simpler, like uh, uh, if you think, uh, for example, about the human intelligence, it's actually a byproduct of uh, of the evolution and not just the biological evolution that uh, that we observed on, on the planet Earth, but you can see it uh, uh, even like the life uh, itself uh, emerging uh, as a byproduct of uh, evolution of the whole universe. Uh, so I I think that uh, many people actually who approach uh, AI from like the this high level concepts uh, that they already want to start with some like a uh, very uh, complex uh, structures that they try somehow to glue together. I did never actually believe that that's uh, that's the right approach if you want to uh, achieve something comparable to human intelligence uh, or even better, like something that can really learn and evolve and change, improve uh, indefinitely. Uh, but at the same time, of course, like if you just care about uh, obtaining some um, isolated system that uh, does well in some like concrete task, uh, whether it's like uh, recognizing images or like translating uh, languages or uh, doing some some like uh, small things uh, that uh, are like very specific or like playing uh, playing chess uh, 
then I think it's uh, totally fine if people actually uh, work on like uh, quite complicated algorithms uh, to solve one particular task if they actually see some value in solving that task. So you mentioned that you've kind of held this view for a long time. Like, could we talk about when you were just first getting interested in AI and machine learning, computer mm -hmm. science? I mean, was it kind of driven by these interests in artificial intelligence or yeah, kind of how did you get started? And then back then, what would you have viewed as the path towards AI? Uh, yeah, sure. Well, that's, uh, that's quite a long time ago. Uh, I'd say that uh, I became interested uh, quite quickly in computers. The, the first time I did uh, actually see one uh, like in real life, uh, I was quite skeptical about the thing because I had some kind of like a child level computer already before that uh, my parents did buy me for the Christmas. And it was kind of like boring thing. Uh, because it was more like uh, some database of some German words uh, that you could kind of play some games against. Uh, against, but uh, it was very limited because there was like some fixed number of combinations that uh, that the machine co uh, could go into. It was basically a finite state machine, and it was boring because uh, after a while you explored all possible combinations of the states of the machine, and there was nothing new. So I was skeptical about computers because of uh, my my. And kind of like uh, experience uh, with uh, with uh, with uh, some sort of computers, but then when I did see actually the real computer, then it was very exciting because suddenly I did see a machine that uh, didn't have uh, some predefined number of states that it can achieve. Uh, even if you, if you would uh, see some simple games back then, you could actually see that they were like very much uh, uh, like uh, simulations of uh, uh, of the real world. Of course, very very simplified, but there was not. Uh, predefined number of states that the machine can achieve. And uh, you could always uh, believe that there's uh, something more and that uh, the way the, the computers are simulating the games that uh, uh, these uh, algorithms that I didn't actually know about uh, back then, but somehow I felt that there's some way how people actually encode these games into, into the computers and that's basically programming, uh, that uh, there's a way how we could actually program these machines to kind of like uh, create new and new things and kind of go on forever. And that uh, immediately like, uh, that's that's the feeling that I had the first day. Uh, I did actually see uh, the computers and did play some uh, games. Uh, and uh, I felt that ever since, uh, like that, uh, um, that these machines are actually amazing and that they can do actually much more than than what uh, adults did see in them back, uh, back in the days when they did see the games as basically just some fun thing. Uh, uh, and that was all. But I felt somehow that uh, that computers could actually do uh, much more than just uh, some silly games. And I, I'd say that uh, as the time did progress, uh, then it's becoming more obvious that uh, computers are actually much, much more useful than they were at the beginning of the 90s. So then at some point, you decided to do a PhD. So how did you get from kind of this initial interest to then wanting to do a PhD and then yeah. That's that's actually a long story because uh, the, the first time I did see, uh, see the computer was when I was eight years old and I I started my my PhD when I was like twenty five uh, or so so there's quite a few years between that and of course like uh, I it's not that I was doing nothing meanwhile because uh, I was really inter interested in understanding this intelligence that we humans have and uh, how can we actually uh, program the computers to uh, to also like uh, have this sort of property to. Uh, be able to learn, to develop, to to do new things, uh, something cool and useful. So 
in the in the very beginning, uh, when I was still kind of like a child, I did think that this uh, intelligence also it was uh, looking extremely exciting. Uh, that uh, it's uh, it's too difficult to solve for me, and so I was just uh, kind of like preparing myself for being able to work on it in the future. So I started learning programming, and I started actually writing the computer you know, computer games on my own. And uh, because I was doing it uh, at the time before the internet was available. Uh, I had to dis uh, discover a lot of algorithms on my own because uh, there was no like internet to go to to read about how you are supposed to solve things. But uh, when I wanted to implement a game like say I don't know Tetris or something like that, then I had to really like think myself how to do things, and I had to develop the algorithms because I didn't even have access to some books that would uh, describe these algorithms. So in in a sense, I was sort of doing some sort of like research back then. Even if it uh, sounds very simple, but I, for example, discovered a couple of ways how to sort numbers uh, algorithmically, and then later at the university, I did learn how these algorithms are called. But uh, I don't know when I was like uh, maybe ten years old. I think I discovered like Monte Carlo algorithms uh, for solving uh, problems for which I didn't know the analytical solution. So there was quite a few things that I discovered a lot of, like uh, back uh, back in those days. Uh, back then, but uh, back uh, back then to your question. How I did get to the PhD. When I, when I started uh, studying at the university, I finally got uh, access to internet. So I started reading uh, like everything that I could find about this artificial intelligence research because uh, I started finding it very exciting. And uh, that's uh, when I started exploring topics like evolutionary algorithms and neural networks uh, and many more. Uh, and uh, I wanted to work on this uh, like for my diploma thesis. Uh, which I did because I already developed uh, some data compression algorithms, actually quite a few of them. Um, but uh, but uh, for my diploma thesis, I wanted to use some algorithm that was able to cluster words uh, based, based on some ad hoc algorithm that I developed, which was actually not uh, perfect, but I was at least able to beat the Ingram models already right away. Uh, so I did contact uh, the group leader of the speech uh, recognition group uh, at, uh, at the Brno University of Technology, whether it's possible to do a diploma thesis on this topic, and he said yes. And uh, then I started actually working his, uh, in his group on on this topic. And uh, quickly, I did find that actually my ad hoc algorithm is not that great, and uh, the same idea can be actually implemented more simply using neural networks. And that's actually how I got to neural network language models, uh, uh, which is what I did uh, work on for my diploma thesis. Uh, and as I was working on it, uh, my like uh, uh, like uh, this group leader uh, Jan Chernotsky did offer me to do PhD in his group. So I was thinking about it for a while, like uh, that it could be an interesting experience. But at the same time, there was basically no one at the university who would have uh, uh, that uh, experience with uh, language modeling that I was uh, looking for. So I was not really sure whether it's a good idea to start a PhD. But then actually, uh, like Jan Chernotsky did. Uh, convinced me that uh, it uh, can be totally fine if I start PhD there at the university and then go for some internships later so that I would uh, be able to learn actually from others uh, uh, about language modeling. And that was the beginning of my PhD. So it sounds like the, um, the interest in the language models actually came through uh, this interest in compression, right? Uh, yes, yes, certainly. Like uh, somehow, I, I, it's fairly difficult to explain why I was actually interested in compression, but I was always <laughs> consider it like a very uh, cool problem. It's kind of like uh, I don't know, like uh, you can be uh, 
trying to run the marathon the fastest you can and you can always feel that you can do a little bit better and with the data conversion it feels a bit like the same like uh, you always know that you can uh, do a little bit better that you can develop a slightly better algorithm and uh, you can do you can do better or even like uh, or faster and so on so for me it was a little bit like a sport uh, to work on data compression and just try to beat my previous results so uh, so I developed a lot of like ad hoc algorithms that I developed on my own. And later when, when I did learn about what others did, then I did find that actually many things were done better. Uh, probably the best algorithm that I developed was working, uh, as a kind of like simplified version of, uh, arithmetic coding. So that's probably the, the best I could do, but otherwise, uh, pretty much all that I did was working worse than what you could find in the literature. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So then what is just uh, as background, like what is this connection between compression and language modeling? Uh, yeah, actually, and, and AI, right? Uh, so there are actually quite nice, uh, nice uh, uh, relationships between these two things. So actually uh, statistical language modeling and data compression is uh, almost the same thing because uh, I did even like uh, describe it uh, in my thesis in some short ch chapter about uh, data compression, but of course, like many other people did observe that uh, before me. So uh, actually, even like before starting working on my diploma thesis, uh, I did uh, read about uh, uh, this guy, Matt Mahoney, who was uh, maintaining a web page about all kinds of data compression algorithms. Uh, and he was also like interested in these uh, connections to artificial intelligence. So it was really cool. Uh, I think it's going to be still found somewhere. And uh, he was running. Uh, um, like a challenge, uh, it was called Hutter Price, uh, where you are supposed to compress uh, 100 megabytes of Wikipedia data as much as you can. And he did make this claim that if you can compress it better than anyone else, then you develop the most intelligent model and so on, which uh, sounds a little bit fishy, but, uh, but at the same time, it actually has some like very, very nice uh, relationships to even like minimum description length uh, and so on. If you really can compress uh, some data, uh, perfectly, then uh, that means that you could find all the identifiable patterns in uh, in these data. So that's that's probably the relationships between all these things. Like data compression is basically statistical language modeling, and uh, the relationships uh, to AI are described, for example, by by these guys like Markus Hutter and Jorgen Schmidhuber and uh, Matt Mahoney, and uh, I think even like. Uh, Joshua Goodman was uh, another person working on statistical language modeling that uh, that uh, makes some remarks about it. So um, I wasn't uh, certainly uh, the first who, who did observe uh, that uh, there is this correlation between these concepts like uh, minimum description length and uh, and AI. Uh, actually, even like uh, Ray Solomonov uh, uh, and so on. Like there was actually a lot of people before me who was who were thinking in in this direction. Yeah. So. What do you think of these this connection now? I mean, do you still view this as there being this tight link between getting being becoming better at compression and becoming more uh, intelligent in some sense? Uh, yeah, that's uh, that's uh, certainly quite a difficult topic because I think that uh, in the last uh, maybe five or six years, uh, I did see that there was this. Uh, this uh, approach to uh, to AI that uh, basically some groups are just training bigger and bigger language models and uh, somehow expecting that uh, at some point it will just be intelligent and well I'm actually not uh, not that optimistic about this uh, um, I think that uh, um, 
like from my today's point of view, I think it's a, a slightly difficult in a sense that you can actually be building better and better and better data compression algorithms uh, where we are slightly beating some benchmarks uh, without actually uh, making any progress towards uh, this AI. If you actually look at this other prize that I mentioned, and if you would go through like uh, what were the winning entries over the years, uh, it's mostly like kind of like a tuning of some hyperparameters, uh, a lot of engineering work. Uh, actually, the intelligence is more like uh, on the side of the human who develops this, uh, this uh, specialized uh, uh, compression algorithm for this one particular data set. Uh, uh, rather than uh, the intelligence being in the algorithms themselves. So uh, I'm, I'm kind of like uh, not sure that uh, this brute force approach uh, uh, where people just try to build uh, like better models uh, really takes us anywhere because, uh, well, I actually did uh, start working on it after my thesis, uh, also I did uh, do something unpublished even before, but uh, you can actually look at uh, uh, this paper that we did publish in, I think, 2014, 15, 15, maybe, uh, where we did show uh, that uh, there are some very simple patterns uh, in sequential data then, uh, that, uh, say, recurrent networks or LSTM recurrent networks uh, do not really learn, that they don't really recognize. And uh, mm. uh, it can be like some context-free grammars, uh, um, like we did actually use uh, some modified uh, recurrent network that was uh, able to work with uh, some topological memory, like with the stacks or with the tape. Uh, and by actually uh, representing the memory uh, in this, uh, in this um, like specialized uh, data structure that the neural network actually did uh, learn to operate on, uh, we could actually solve some of these uh, toyish problems. Uh, uh, or in other words, we could learn the regularity in the data which was not possible with, uh, with the normal machine learning uh, algorithms. But uh, it was more like an example that there are like simple things that are learnable, but uh, that cannot be uh, learned uh, with, uh, with the standard techniques. And I'd say that it holds uh, still even today. Uh, also like uh, later, I think in 2015 or so, I did write this, uh, this uh, high level paper. It's called the roadmap uh, towards uh, machine intelligence. Uh, and there I'm basically discussing uh, a lot of things that are basically limitations of uh, this brute force uh, approach to statistical language modeling. Uh, uh, there's a lot of like names for it, like transfer learning and lifelong learning. Uh, and these topics are actually becoming popular nowadays, uh, but it was more like a, uh, I was trying to describe that there are uh, things uh, that are difficult to learn. And if you just, uh, aim to crush the existing benchmarks, which uh, were at the time not very well defined, then uh, the easiest way how to make uh, progress uh, is going to be to just uh, increase the size of the model and increase the size of the training set. And you actually don't really do anything new at all. And you will get a slightly better score in some NLP tasks. Uh, and so what, like you didn't actually approach uh, any, uh, any AI, you didn't actually improve uh, basically anything, uh, there's nothing in your work, uh, but uh, but you will get better scores on the benchmarks. Uh, and that's ex exactly what happened actually after 2015. There was like this, uh, like a swarm of papers about pre-trained language models. I don't know, there was this Baird and uh, 
then I don't know what were all the shortcuts then and opening I did make uh, this huge PR about this uh, GPT-1, 2, 3, 4, 5 or whatever are the current numbers of these models, uh, which actually is totally fine like uh, on its own if you see it as uh, some engineering uh, level project uh, that you will just between bigger language models and more data is going to be more useful and uh, uh, it's totally nice on its own, but uh, it's actually not about like uh, making scientific progress. It's uh, from my point of view, it's uh, it's uh, not satisfying in a sense that it's not taking us anywhere close uh, to what I said that was my original motivation when I was a child. And I wanted to see the computers actually doing something new, developing, learning, evolving. Uh, if you take actually the existing uh, uh, mainstream language models, they will just drain for some time. Uh, and then they just freeze their parameters. Then you start using the model with these frozen parameters. It doesn't uh, change anymore ever. And uh, well, where's the AI there? Like uh, it cannot actually happen. Like from my point of view, if you have models that can't change, uh, then they don't have uh, any ability to learn. And uh, and if they can't learn, how anybody would call it AI? It's it's just a big statistical model, and that's all. So I think it's uh, it's a bit complicated to explain it in some clear way. I don't know if it's clear from what I'm saying, but uh, somehow I just believe that uh, to make progress in statistical language modeling uh, using uh, the existing benchmark uh, benchmarks uh, uh, is going to be very difficult because uh, the existing benchmarks actually uh, can be improved uh, the most easily if you do things uh, that are not relevant uh, uh, to research. And again, that's just bigger models trained on more data. So maybe this compression view is a really nice theoretical idea, uh, but maybe it doesn't capture this ability or this need to kind of have a continuously updating model and potentially other aspects. And then maybe what you're saying is that in practice, when we go towards this compression goal, uh, we ultimately kind of narrow the scope to maybe some set of benchmarks, and then we end up just optimizing the benchmarks and maybe losing sight of the larger picture just a mm. kind of high level uh summary maybe sure sure yeah so yeah the um as, as we've talked about so the the title of your thesis it's statistical language models based on neural networks and i guess when we hear that today um at least at the time of recording uh the statistical approach as well as the neural networks approach has kind of become the standard thing to do. So at the time that you were starting, where was this idea? I mean, like where was language modeling? Where was the idea of using neural networks for language modeling? Yeah, it was actually a very difficult time. I sometimes would even call it like a dark age of, uh, of language modeling because, uh, <laughs> like, uh, uh, you know, like uh, uh, back in the days, uh, it wasn't normal to uh, to open source your code or share the data set. So, but could uh, you could actually observe if you would go to some conference like I don't know, like ICASP or InterSpeech, uh, where the speech recognition guys did uh, go to. There were like usually some small sessions about language modeling, but they were like terribly boring. Uh, uh, people were just basically rehashing uh, the engram techniques, just making some some minor um, changes to them, and it wasn't. Uh, exciting at all. And then they would report the results uh, with their new modified uh, uh, approach to, I don't know, like sort of some topic in ground modeling or whatever. They would publish it on their own internal data set that uh, nobody else had. So you couldn't actually reproduce these results. Uh, 
and uh, they wouldn't publish the code uh, either. So if you would uh, want to um, like uh, get their technique working, you have to re implement uh, it yourself, yourself. And there was actually quite a few papers that were promising huge improvements in whatever, like machine translation or speech recognition. So uh, there was a huge amount of skepticism about, uh, about the new techniques uh, among researchers. Uh, because what many people actually did was that uh, they would look at these papers and they would spend a couple of weeks trying to re-implement re some of them. Then it wouldn't work uh, as well as it was advertised. Uh, and, uh, and then they would uh, get this idea that maybe the results uh, that the authors did publish were not really as good as it was advertised. And maybe, maybe it was uh, kind of like uh, somewhat uh, changed so that it would look better. And there was actually uh, many times uh, the case. I did uh, see, for example, uh, myself that uh, there was some like uh, issue with uh, with uh, experiments uh, done in such a way that uh, the models were trained on the test data. There was some paper from I think two thousand five, mm -hmm. uh, which uh, people didn't really find for a couple of years. Uh, so of course there was huge uh, improvement published uh, uh, in the paper that nobody could reproduce because there was basically a mistake in, in the setup uh, uh, and you can't actually find it easily unless you have the setup. Then I remember another like, uh, issue when some other student that I didn't know from some other university would uh, go on and publish uh, the paper where he like uh, cherry-picked uh, the hyperparameters uh, on the test set. Uh, so if you would just uh, not do that, then actually his magical technique would uh, suddenly stop working. Uh, I don't like it. Not uh, it would not give you any improvement over the baseline anymore. Uh, mm -hmm. And there was other example from some famous uh, machine learning group uh, where actually people published again a language modeling paper. I, I'm not giving names now because uh, I think it would be a bit offensive to some people. Some of them are uh, famous, but uh, but uh, they would go on and boast about something like a 10% improvement over entropy of the best Ingram model ever. And then you would actually go and look at the paper and. Uh, they were actually comparing uh, themselves against like some kind of like weakish uh, model, but uh, again, like it was uh, a bit difficult. I did actually work with some of these guys to reproduce the numbers, and then uh, I did find that actually they are not ten percent better in entropy. They were like maybe two, three, or four percent better uh, in entropy if they actually would fix uh, the problems in their baseline, which they didn't know at all about. There was a lot of issues with cache models that people. They reinvent kind of like cache models uh, under different names and compare uh, against bad baselines. Uh, and um, the worst maybe was uh, when I did see in one company, there was a guy who was publishing one paper after each other about something like, uh, I think it was discriminative language modeling or something of this sort. Uh, uh, well, again, like when I actually did obtain his uh, data set uh, only because I was actually working for a while in that company, uh, otherwise, it was impossible to reproduce the numbers. And I did actually find very quickly that uh, his uh, baseline that uh, he was reporting in the paper was a very, very, very bad language model. It was kind of like worse than a, than a simple bigram model with good Turing smoothing. Uh, and I did actually approach this guy and I asked him, like, why doesn't he fix the, the baseline? Because if he would fix the baseline, then all the improvements from his magical language modeling technique uh, would vanish, and uh, and you know, like uh, it was uh, it was more like a negative result that his uh, that his uh, ideas that uh, he even I think did win some best paper awards for that they actually don't work at all. 
And he said, oh, well, but I just have this setup from some guy. I'm not going to fix it because who cares? So uh, I did find it very annoying because it was like kind of like anti-science, like people were publishing results that they didn't know that they are weak, but they were doing it because they could get uh, the citations, they could uh, get famous, they could get rich. And uh, I was actually quite frustrated by this approach among many scientists uh, who were just ready to cheat uh, as long as nobody could uh, catch them. So I was actually always uh, trying to propose after I did see these examples, uh, uh, but also like because as a student, I had trouble to obtain any data sets uh, to compare against. So I was trying uh, uh, to publish uh, like uh, all the code that I had uh, that was needed to reproduce the numbers in my papers. And I was also trying to publish uh, all the data sets whenever I could uh, to basically have uh, reproducible numbers, uh, reproducible results. Uh, and I think that contributed in a huge way to, uh, like, uh, to the future success of, of language modeling. Because uh, again, like in this dark age of language modeling, uh, nobody did trust anyone, and uh, the whole community was almost dead because of it. Then you ask about uh, the neural network language models. Uh, well, there was actually a couple of people before me who did work on them. I can probably remember Yoshua Benjiu and his group. Paul uh, Gershwang did certainly did uh, do a lot of. Uh, Cool work on it, uh, and there was uh, Ahmad Emami who uh, was at JHU and later at uh, IBM, who did also like spent uh, quite a few years working on these models. Uh, and, uh, and when I was a PhD student myself, there was another guy, Heisenle at uh, Limsi, who was working on these uh, models as well. So there was like few people. The results were looking uh, quite nice, uh, but there was uh, often the issue that. Uh, as you did scale the amount of training data, then these models were basically just giving you less and less improvement. And there was a lot of like uh, issues with it. Like people didn't know what to do with the large softmax. For example, Paul Gershwang would, uh, would uh, use something called shortlists, which actually wasn't actually a good idea to be honest. Uh, and uh, he was basically getting much less improvement from these neural language models than was achievable if you would uh, not do it if you would do it in some other way, like for example, the hierarchical softmax that uh, I, I was using myself. That idea was published before by by Joshua Goodman uh, in the co context of uh, like uh, maximum entropy models, which is kind of like logistic regression, and later applied to neural language models by Yoshio Benjo and his student. Uh, but they did it in such a way that it was very complicated. Uh, you needed a wordnet, so it wasn't easy to port it to some other data set or language uh, and so on. I did it in a very, very simple way that was data-driven. So, uh, so my version of Hierarchical Softmax was actually like uh, very easy to work with. Uh, but there was quite a few other things that, uh, that I had to do to make uh, these models uh, competitionally efficient. Uh, while also not sacrificing uh, much of the accuracy so that uh, there would still be some beginnings to be achieved. So I think that uh, in the end, uh, if you did go through all my thesis, there was actually quite a few things uh, that I had to do so that uh, these models would work, would work well. Well, the cherry on the cake was, uh, was this recurrent neural network uh, uh, architecture, which was uh, at the time considered to be not trainable by SGD. And for that, I had to develop this uh, this gradient clipping algorithm that uh, actually uh, did allow the uh, RNNs to be trained on large data sets without diverging. Yeah, so I, I guess there had been some indications, for example, like this feedforward language model from Yashio Bengio and 
I started that there was this uh, Joshua Goodman's uh, report from Microsoft Research, I think from 2002 or so, where he already tried to compare a lot of uh, different language modeling techniques and the neural networks uh, um, that uh, that uh, he had, I think from Yoshia Benji at the time, were looking quite promising. Uh, so there was actually quite some evidence that there is a potential in these models. It was just not uh, fully understood. Right, yeah. And then, like, so you'd mentioned all these different issues with um, reproducibility, mm. with kind of the evaluation protocols. Do you think that that was somehow tied in with the issue of people kind of sticking to the same method or were those kind of separate? That maybe it became easy to just make a little tweak to the existing method uh, and get some benefit versus like trying to look to a fundamentally new method like mm. using the recurrent neural networks? Uh, yeah, I think it's uh, somewhat connected, uh, although it's like uh, different issues. Uh, I certainly felt that uh, the research community is uh, is uh, like much more on this exploitation side and much less on the exploration side than I would actually like because uh, it was the case that uh, when the engrams were dominant techniques, then you would just see like a uh, tons of papers about all kinds of engrams and like modifications of engrams and some new slightly different uh, smoothing technique and so on. And then when actually neural network language models became popular, then uh, people made the conclusion from this that, uh, oh, we should have been using neural networks all the time. But uh, I think it's actually the wrong conclusion. Like, uh, in, like in my view, uh, people should rather think, uh, oh, well, maybe we shouldn't have been thinking that engrams are unbeatable, which actually people were saying at the time. We should have been trying to actually invent something new. We should have been trying to work on some new ideas. Uh, uh, and I think that's uh, still the case uh, today. Like people should not be saying today, oh, the lesson that we should have learned is that neural networks are great and we should be using them everywhere. I think that the real lesson is that uh, whatever works the best today is beatable by something that we have to still invent. And to invent it, we actually have to try to work on something new. It's not going to work right away. In the beginning, it's for, uh, even if we have the right ideas, it's going to work terrible because simply the current benchmarks are not going to favor this new approach. And uh, we should be more like open-minded about what people are working on. And uh, that's something that I don't really see much in the research community. And I'm honestly somewhat surprised by it that uh, there's uh, so much work that is uh, almost useless. Uh, like conferences are flooded by thousands and thousands of papers every year that uh, I don't even know like why people are like wasting their time by writing them. If, uh, if you already can see from the abstract uh, what will be the result, and it's going to be just some combination of uh, ideas that are already known, evaluated on some slightly modified data set. And <clears throat> I think that uh, it would be really good if, uh, if the research community would uh, value more like uh, some novelty, um, like uh, exploration uh, and some thinking uh, rather than beating uh, blindly some benchmarks and whenever the research community over-optimizes uh, results on some benchmark, they just uh, publish some new version of it and then boom, and you have new pre-trained language model and you can evaluate it on 500 variations of the same thing. And uh, it just can go on forever without actually leading uh, to any improvement uh, in, uh, in what we know, in any discovery of new, new uh, ideas. Mm. Do you, so yeah, as you mentioned, you had to try many different things to get this to work. Do you remember like a certain single experiment where everything kind of lit up and you thought like, wow, this is really working. This is really 
mm. going to be kind of the future method. Are you, yeah, sure. I remember it actually because uh, that uh, I was uh, trying for a couple of years to come up with some idea how to uh, make a, like improvement over this uh, baseline, which for me was the feed for virtual network language model. And uh, what was the year? I think it was the 2009, sometime in the summer, uh, maybe late summer. And uh, uh, I had like this uh, experiment that I already tried many times before, actually. And there was like this simple kind of like Elman style recurrence neural network. I, I actually, that was the very first thing that I tried to implement when it comes to neural networks, when I wanted to add time dimension to neural network, like in 2006, uh, then uh, then the first uh, thing that I could think of was basically to feed the values from the hidden layer to the next inputs. Uh, and that's basically the Elmer architecture. And uh, I did it even before I knew how is it called. Uh, but it wasn't working in 2006 and somehow in 2009, as I said, like uh, it, it was working and I was observing these improvements that were like uh, significant uh, uh, and it was very really exciting. Uh, at first, I didn't really want to believe the results because uh, as I said, like I tried uh, something quite similar a couple of times before and it always fails. I was there looking for like a, what could be the bug or like what, what is actually the reason why I'm now observing this, uh, this magical improvement. And, uh, well, uh, I actually did find that actually the bug was in the previous experiments that I was using uh, data sets where there was a mismatch between training data and uh, test data. So actually, they were coming from dist different distributions. And this is actually slightly uh, difficult to understand. But uh, if, you, uh, if you train, for example, on some, say, spoken language, and then you evaluate your language model on some written language, uh, then you can sometimes see this strange behavior that, for example, trigram will give you worse perplexity than a bigram. It will work worse because actually the model is uh, fitting more the data from uh, from basically different domain. Uh, so actually, a better language modeling technique will give you worse performance, which is uh, kind of like counterintuitive. Uh, and it's really like a, an issue of the data sets. Like this is not a good uh, good uh, setup. And as I said, like I had this issue. Uh, from the beginning that there were like, no available uh, public uh, benchmarks for language modeling. Uh, when I started as a student, I had to set some of these benchmarks my, myself, like for example, the Petri Bank uh, language modeling benchmark, like this one billion word language modeling benchmark and so on. But uh, mm -hmm. but uh, when I was working uh, on it as a student, this basically did, uh, did delay uh, me quite a bit because uh, because I was using uh, like wrong setup for quite a bit of time. But again, like when I did see it in 2009 and after I did really figure out that it's not a bug, it's not a mistake and uh, the improvement is real and it was very exciting. And uh, although the experiment was very, very small and it was like using some very smallish part, I think from switchboard uh, data set, uh, uh, still I was convinced that this is uh, something uh, amazing because if you can uh, basically beat uh, whatever did work the best after a couple of years of trying, uh, uh, which uh, which basically means that it was very likely the best language modeling technique in the world. Uh, uh, then then I did believe, uh, maybe a bit foolishly, but I did really believe that it's going to be used uh, by pretty much anyone sooner or later. And it actually happened. Uh, like uh, mm -hmm. today, if you look at what uh, people are doing in NLP or or like uh, statistic language modeling communities, then it's basically all neural networks. So yeah, I guess mm -hmm. I was right in the end. <laughs> yeah, it is kind of interesting to think that fundamentally, like the same learning algorithm, mm -hmm. uh, and then 
now variations of the architecture. So instead of recurrent neural networks, now we're using transformers yeah, and yeah. they're a lot larger. But like the similar recipe is mm. what's used today. Do you, do you uh, yeah, so one thing you mentioned um, maybe towards the end of the thesis was various things that you tried along the way. And I thought it was kind of a creative list. Like there was even things like genetic algorithms thrown mm. in there. Do you have any like particularly memorable things, ideas that you tried that maybe didn't work out and as a result didn't make it into the PhD thesis? Uh, yeah, well, that's quite a long time ago. I think it was 2008 uh, that I was working on this and it was uh, quite a strange time in a sense that, uh, well, I didn't know how to train these recurrent networks that I was interested in. Basically, I was interested in having uh, models that develop some notion of time and possibly some memory. and. Uh, uh, when the SG, SGD training of recurrent networks failed, as I said in 2006, I was looking for some different ways because uh, there in the literature you would find uh, uh, that everybody was claiming that uh, that models that have more nonlinearities, uh, basically what is today called deep learning, uh, that uh, that just is not trainable with SGD. And uh, so when it didn't work for me, there was uh, what everybody was anyway saying around me and what was written all over in the papers that it cannot work uh, this way. So I tried actually a different approach for training the model and that was more like this uh, genetic uh, approaches, uh, evolutionary strategies and so on. And uh, it was actually not working uh, that horrible in a sense that I could train on some very, very smallish character-based language modeling data set, a model that was working as well as I think five or six gram uh, so, I mean, using uh, using uh, engrams, so I could train this with the evolutionary techniques uh, and the recurrent network. Uh, so it was looking promising, although like, uh, uh, as I said, the data set was tiny, so you could train the engram in like less than one second. And uh, uh, and using uh, using my approach, it would take like three days uh, to get a, a model with similar perplexity. So it wasn't going to be anything practical and uh, it, uh, felt like that uh, the way how the evolutionary algorithms are working is uh, is not um, really that related to how the evolution works in nature. Well, that would be a very long topic to talk about, but basically evolutionary algorithms, uh, the, these mathematical models, it's more like a, uh, some sort of like a, um, iterative hill climbing with random directions. So you basically try to explore from the current uh, Current point, uh, some random direction and uh, or directions, and you pick the one that uh, works the best. Uh, so compared to SGD, that actually at uh, every time just computes analytically the best direction already. It's just basically much slower. So mm -hmm. uh, and as I said, like it's it's not really related as much to the evolution that we observe in the nature. Like uh, I don't really see uh, like a natural evolution being based uh, just on this uh, on this uh, random search. Uh, iterative random search, yeah. but, uh, but that's maybe going too far. Just uh, back to your question. So probably the most memorable thing that I still remember is that uh, actually in the middle of the PhD uh, in the Czech Republic, uh, at least at our university, we had to write something called pre-thesis. Uh, so it was supposed to be this like 10 or 15 pages long report uh, so that uh, like the professors could see that we are actually working on something sensible or at least that you are trying uh, something that can lead to your thesis. Uh, well, it was supposed to be more like a formal thing, uh, uh, like everybody did pass uh, with whatever students were doing. Uh, it was kind of like an easy, easy exam to, to go through. Well, um, in my case, I didn't actually pass it because uh, 
my uh, my opponent was uh, was uh, chosen to be uh, a guy who was uh, like an expert on NLP, or at least uh, he claimed to be, and uh, he was very angry with uh, with my work. Like uh, he hated pretty much everything about it. Like uh, neural networks, no. Like applying neural networks to language, that's stupid. I'm stupid to even think about it because it makes no sense. And then trying to train it with whatever like uh, genetic algorithms, of course. SGD version of the feed for original network language models that was giving me a lot of back then, like huge improvements in prolixity. No, makes no sense. Uh, and uh, I had to basically give up on this uh, based uh, based on his recommendation. Otherwise, there's no chance that I will ever defend my thesis about uh, this topic. So it was actually a very difficult time. And uh, uh, I still like remember it because of this, because uh, the review was really saying like very harshly that. Uh, that I'm basically like whenever I'm reporting some good results, then uh, then uh, I'm basically lying about it, and uh, that's clear because uh, all these neural networks that I'm talking about are like uh, it's never gonna work, and I don't know. Like, uh, it feels like the scientific community is uh, is uh, a bit strange in some sense because I think this uh, sort of behavior should not be even allowed. Uh, but anyways, uh, uh, so I didn't pass the pre-thesis. Uh, I had to repeat it. Uh, Again, which at least I had another chance uh, a couple of years later, but it was certainly a memorable experience as you were asking about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do you remember like what? Uh, so like when you get this um, kind of feedback that it's not a good idea, what kind of motivated you to keep working on it? Was it the results you were seeing? Um, mm. Were other people maybe more positive about it? Well, I wouldn't really say that people were positive about it. Uh, I was just uh, seeing the results and that I was convinced that uh, like sooner or later I will figure it out, like how to um, get better. And uh, I was just this, uh, I was convinced that uh, this is gonna work in the future. Uh, and if I will not be able to finish the PhD at the Berlin University of Technology, then I will just uh, continue elsewhere. So that's how I was thinking of it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so I think a lot of the listeners will be will have heard of Word to Vec before. So maybe we could start to go to after your thesis. Um, so eventually, you did work on this very impactful work, Word to Vec, and again, it um, seems like it must be somehow related in the sense that they're both about language, both about learning representation. Was there some kind of path of ideas that you see between your PhD work? than to working on word to vec mm. uh, Yeah, well, word to vec was never supposed to solve uh, AI or anything. It was more like uh, <laughs> some some simple thing. Uh, but uh, to get uh, to get it from the beginning, so uh, as I said, like when I was working on, the, on my diploma thesis, the first idea was to use recurrent network to capture time, and the second idea was uh, to learn word vectors uh, using something like a like very trivial version of word to vec uh, and then concatenate the word vectors to form the history of, say, the last three or four words and train again like Enneagram uh, uh, neural, neural network language model using this uh, pre-trained word vector. So I was doing it only like in 2006. It was my second idea, actually, uh, in, uh, in my master's thesis, uh, as, as the first idea didn't work, as I said, and it was because of the data set. Uh, but uh, but uh, back uh, like in uh, 2012 to this, I was actually doing... Uh, um, an internship at Microsoft Research with uh, Jet Swag, and it was actually very cool. And uh, we did uh, do a lot of work there in a short time. But uh, but uh, 
I felt that uh, Jeff is a little bit skeptical about these neural networks, although they were working uh, here and there. And uh, I felt that uh, he doesn't really like uh, see them as, as uh, so, so cool. And uh, I did prepare basically like some small joke for him. And that was that uh, uh, I did already know from like, uh, again, like it was slightly described in my ma master's thesis in 2007 that uh, published in 2007, but I was working on it already from 2006. Uh, uh, that there's there are like these uh, uh, interesting um, like uh, effects in these board vector spaces that for example the boards with the same endings uh, get clustered together in this uh, high dimensional space and so on. But uh, also like uh, what I observed later is that uh, you can be forming these short equations with the, these board vectors and then using some tricks and nearest neighbor search uh, you can uh, solve some like analogical uh, equations uh, and. Uh, so I did uh, prepare this uh, this thing that I didn't know that if you take this uh, this uh, this king minus man plus woman example that the, the result will be queen. So uh, so I did go to Jeff actually, and as we were chatting, uh, then I actually asked him because uh, it was in the right context uh, uh, whether he thinks that such thing would be uh, doable with these word vectors that I had from from my language models. And, uh, and of course, like uh, if you hear this idea. Uh, for the first time, then you just would think, oh, this is just a, just a stupid thing that can never work. And that's exactly what Jeff told me. And so I did take him to the computer and I did show him, okay, look, and uh, here just uh, do this and that, and this is the result. And, uh, and we got the queen, which I already know, of course, in advance, it's going to work with, uh, with the given model. But then we tried with some other examples and it was still looking uh, reasonable, the results. Like, it's not that it was working always, but at least uh, it was looking reasonable. Well, Jeff uh, got actually uh, quickly very excited about it, and uh, and then he was thinking how we can actually evaluate the, this sort of thing, uh, uh, these uh, these uh, regularities in these word vector spaces. So he actually did come up with this idea that uh, he can use uh, some data set. I forget now which one was it, uh, but he could actually form a lot of these uh, like analogical uh, like uh, problems uh, uh, very quickly. I think it was like a couple of thousands of them. Uh, then we did try to evaluate different uh, different word vectors from different models, and it was looking actually uh, like quite okay. Like uh, as you can imagine, uh, the models that were trained on more data were working better, and so on. So we did write a paper about it, uh, and uh, then we did submit it to the next NLP conference, which was Knuckle, and that's what we presented uh, in 2013. I think it was in like maybe June or so, sometime in the summer, I think, uh, and. Uh, uh, but before that, I actually did finish the internship. I did go to, to back to Brno to defend my PhD and then uh, then back to, to the US to start working at Google Brain. It was October 2012. Uh, so uh, I already did uh, know all these things when I started in, in Google Brain. And then uh, then guess what I did see as one of the first things. Uh, people were training some word vectors, uh, but they were using some quite inefficient uh, architectures of neural networks. Uh, at the time, and they were just brute forcing the problem by just using hundreds of computers and so on. It was looking quite wasteful, so I was uh, feeling like uh, very bold, and I told people that okay, it can be done much better on single machine, much faster, and uh, the accuracies are going to be a lot better. Uh, but well, nobody did really listen to me because I was there a new person and so on. So okay, go and prove it, or we don't care. Like uh, uh, this type of approach. Uh, well, so, so I did start working on it and uh, surprisingly, actually, the model from Google Brain was not that easy to beat as I was thinking origin that's going to be one afternoon. Well, it wasn't, uh, it took me 
maybe like two weeks or so by tweaking some things in my architecture of the model, but then I could actually beat it. And, uh, and uh, there was sort of like, a, I think maybe December by then, 2012, uh, when I got actually email from Yoshia Benjo that is starting a new conference, which is this iClear. And, uh, mm-hmm. and he did see like the, this results with these analogies before that uh, maybe I can send some, some submission there. Well, it was kind of short notice because the deadline was, I think, uh, like first week of January or so. So then I spent the Christmas working on this work-to-back paper. So it wasn't actually that well written because it was written quite quickly. Uh, but uh, then I think the main ideas were like uh, gonna work, uh, were going to work quite well. And even like others who were working with me in Google Brain were quite optimistic about it because uh, that you could process on a single machine like uh, huge amounts of data and the trained models were working. Uh, right away across many, many applications. So, well, we all got uh, somewhat disappointed when actually uh, the reviews were out and actually, uh, you know, like you can still find it. I think it's available somewhere on the internet, like the reviews for the work to back paper where like in the first year of iClear, I think the acceptance rate for the conference, either for like this oral or like poster was uh, together maybe 70%. So they really accepted pretty much everything. Uh, but the work to back paper was rejected actually, and yeah. uh, the, and uh, the reviews uh, were kind of like, uh, oh, but this model doesn't capture the work order, and the, that just means that it's not going to be really like uh, good. Well, sure, it doesn't capture the work order, and uh, it would be great if it would, and it would be still as efficient as it is. But uh, that's not the case. But uh, just because it doesn't do everything perfectly, does it mean that you are going to reject the paper? Come on. Then there was other reviewer who was complaining. Oh, well, you are citing these papers from this guy from Toronto from 2010 or nine or something, but you are not really discussing them enough. And the model that you are presenting is just too close to it. Uh, well, I did find it kind of like offensive because uh, the model that I was describing in Vortovec was just much closer actually to my diploma thesis. So, so I actually, instead of like uh, saying, oh, all this has been invi- invented by this guy in 2009, I did actually extend the paper and uh, and then it actually cite my diploma thesis, I think, in it uh, in some subsequent version to just show that, okay, but I did it in 2006, so I'm just fine to to just uh, give credit to myself and to buy, and that was it. Uh, but anyways, uh, that wasn't working with this anonymous reviewer, and uh, and uh, well, the paper got rejected, uh, and again, like uh, it was kind of disappointing because uh, I felt that it's going to be helpful to quite a few people, and I wasn't the only one, as I said, even the others. Uh, at Google Brain, well, I wasn't really like as optimistic as uh, as I would be now if I would know what uh, back then what I know today. I was expecting that maybe like uh, there could be maybe like fifty people using it in like uh, the next couple of years, and that was my estimate. And that uh, in my view was a lot because you know I was coming from the Berlin University of Technology, and that's not MIT or Stanford. Uh, if you publish there something really cool, you will get like maybe five citations, and that's it. Uh, and there's really like this uh, this effect that the rich get richer and so on. So you can publish the same idea in different places and get completely different credit for it scientifically. So uh, let's be honest about it. Uh, but I did under, underestimate this Google effect, and I think uh, that uh, that's what made uh, Vortovec uh, uh, famous because uh, I wanted to open source it. As I said, like I was trying to open source everything uh, always, whenever possible. I didn't even open source things. Uh, uh, from like uh, my Microsoft research internship. Uh, so I was trying to do the same with Vortovec uh, at Google Brain. Well, it wasn't working, uh, it wasn't uh, easy at all because uh, Google wasn't open sourcing machine learning uh, 
algorithms uh, back in the days. Uh, I think Vortovec was uh, likely the first actually open sourced uh, machine learning project uh, that was published uh, by Google. And uh, I couldn't actually get approval from some guy who was sitting uh, in New York. Uh, basically, it was on his table for a couple of months, but he was doing nothing. He didn't reject uh, my project from being published. He didn't accept it. He was just doing nothing. And it was looking like a, it's kind of like a deadlock. But luckily, I was in this in this group with, uh, with some people who were like uh, quite, uh, quite, uh, like powerful to be honest uh, in the company like there was Jeff Dean leading Google Brain and uh, there was like Greg Porado who was like very active and uh, uh, thanks to their help uh, I actually got the approval in the end like after a couple of months uh, that I was waiting for it that's also why the code actually by the way in Vortuvec was looking so much over optimized because as I was waiting for the approval I was just uh, basically just uh, changing the code and looking for the ways how to speed mm -hmm. it up and how to make it shorter and then maybe mm -hmm. I did overdo it a bit so people were later complaining that the code is not easy to read uh, but uh, but that's because I just did spend a bit too much time on it <laughs> and, uh, and that's basically the story of work to back then when it got published and suddenly all the people got excited about it in my opinion too much because uh, sure it's it's a nice it's a nice thing but uh, but it's not, it's not going to solve AI, but then it started being used by a lot of uh, people in different contexts, not just for like uh, language modeling or stuff like that, but I did see it uh, used a lot by people working on ads in different uh, like uh, groups in Google and even uh, different companies and uh, really, really like reporting huge improvements in what they were doing. So suddenly uh, I realized that there was actually much more value in this uh, type of work than I was actually thinking myself originally. Yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah, it's fascinating to go back and hear about the kind of uh, persistence you have to have to get this idea out. And then even the idea that you had some sense that it was going to have an impact, but maybe it's hard to predict the hmm. degree to which it'll be picked up by, by others. Sure. So then obviously we can't cover everything, but maybe one thing I wanted to, to ask about was this other work that you did on kind of like stack RNNs. And it, it seems like you kept working with these recurrent networks. Was there was that kind of based on your familiarity with them, with your interest in them from your PhD? Uh, yeah, sure, certainly. Like, uh, because I did spend so much time, like so many years working on recurrent networks, then uh, it was uh, it was easy to work with them in the future. Also, like uh, because at the time they were, they were working on some basically state of the art uh, uh, models. Uh, then I was looking for the ways how uh, we could uh, even get better results than that. And uh, and uh, of course there was the LSTM. But uh, I did publish some paper I think in 2014 where I was showing that LSTM. Sure, it's it's a nice model, but uh, what it basically does in a language modeling is building this. Uh, Kind of cache style model, and you can do it with simpler architectures that uh, I did describe in, in this in this paper. I think it was called learning longer term memory in in recurrent network, something like that. I think it was from 2014, and uh, uh, sure. But then I could pretty much like match the the perplexity of LSTM with a with a simpler model, like with a simpler architecture. At the same time, people from Montreal did publish this GRU. I think it was called. Uh, architecture which was again like kind of like lstm but with one less gate i think uh, so it was like basically modified lstm i uh, what i was interested in more was uh, to actually be the lstm to come up with some 
model that can actually learn something that LSTMs teams cannot learn. That that's uh, that's actually what the stack RNs did. But uh, if you would actually look at that paper, it was uh, sort of like clumsy in a sense. Like uh, uh, it was more like demonstration that it, it's possible to learn something more. But uh, it was working just on some artificial data sets that we created. Uh, but uh, they were also like kind of tuned for the model architecture. So we could, for example, solve the binary addition problem, which uh, sounds very, very, very fancy, or even simpler like uh, sequence memorization. But uh, then if you would really go and look uh, in, uh, into the details in our paper, then you would find that we were, for example, rotating the order of the, of the sequences in such a way that it would be actually quite friendly for the stacks so that uh, you could uh, find some reasonable solution or simple solution where only one step through the non-linearity non was needed uh, per one input example. And, uh, you know, like it was more like uh, demonstrating that there are things that can be learned, but uh, that the LSTMs do not learn. Uh, but it's really like a difficult question, like uh, how can we uh, set up uh, new like algorithms for learning from sequential data without actually uh, also like coming uh, with new data sets? Because if you look at the uh, the language modeling itself, if you take a real world data like say Wikipedia or some language data like books, uh, it's really hard to, to beat the LSTMs because, uh, uh, or like uh, in general, or transformers now, or basically some big, big neural network language models, basically, that's, uh, that's going to work really well. And I think that uh, even humans would have uh, problems to beat in some sense uh, these models when it comes to predicting the next word or character. In, uh, in some in some uh, in some like uh, cases because uh, because these models are just uh, trained nowadays on like many orders of magnitude more data than a typical human will see in the whole lifetime. So I think that uh, really like uh, we are getting into, into some unfair conditions where if we are comparing uh, um, different techniques, uh, then, uh, then the one that can just be trained on more data more quickly is just gonna win. And it's going back to the problem that we discussed in the beginning. Like, uh, if we want to uh, come up with uh, radically new learning techniques, uh, then the current benchmarks are probably not uh, not a way to go. But to uh, but to publish new technique together with the new benchmark. Uh, that's very difficult because uh, it's uh, it's hard to convince the research community that this is the right thing uh, to do. So first of all, uh, this type of work will take you much more effort. It's going to be much more difficult to do it uh, than just some incremental paper. And then in the end, it's going to be much harder to get your work accepted at some conference. Uh, and even if you succeed, then how will you convince other people to work uh, on what you are working on unless there's some like big company backing you up by just uh, you know, like uh, putting a lot of money behind it. So uh, it's, it's difficult, basically, to come up with uh, new ideas that others can uh, easily pick and uh, extend. Yeah, then maybe let's go to um, closer to the current day. So nowadays you're at the Czech Institute for Informatics. Could you talk through your decision process for deciding to move back to academia and then um, maybe to start like what you're focusing on now? Mm. Uh, yeah, it's very related to, ju to just what we discussed because uh, in the uh, company side, it uh, suddenly feel that there is this uh, pressure to uh, improve whatever exists uh, by say one percent or these these kind of improvements are good. Like uh, 
if you can train 10 times bigger model that will give you 1% improvement over whatever benchmark, that, that's a that's good type of work uh, from the point of view of these companies. Uh, but as a researcher, you know, like it gets uh, kind of disappointing or boring uh, quickly because, uh, you know, like we all live just once and I didn't want to spend my life by doing obvious things forever because I just don't find it uh, exciting. So I wanted to work on like uh, new things where I would not be uh, constrained by uh, thinking about like whatever manager thinks. Uh, and uh, going back to academia actually did seem to be a reasonable choice. Of course, academia has its own issues. You have to be uh, trying to get the funding for the students through grants and to get the grants. It's also like a, the same story. It's much easier to get a grant if you are working on something that everybody already knows. Uh, than if you are trying to propose something new. So sure, but uh, it certainly feels like there's much more freedom in the academia list uh, so far. I did spend like one year at the, at the university and uh, uh, I don't know, I'm just more happy than when I, when I was at, at the corporation when, when I had to deal with, uh, with a lot of people who had some dif difficult personality types. Uh, uh, so uh, yeah, sure. I mean, everything has uh, its advantages and disadvantages, but uh, I think that if I want to focus uh, more freely on what I'm really interested in and that's uh, coming up with, uh, with new things that have potential to do something, uh, something that um, will be unexpectedly better or like different than what we can do today, then, uh, then I think academia is much better place for me than, than the industry. So now a lot of your research is focused on this area of complexity and even these things with cellular automata. Hmm. Could, could you talk through your kind of interests in that? Uh, sure, yeah, actually it uh, goes back to my interest in, in this evolutionary uh, like uh, style um, approach to intelligence, which we actually discussed in the whole beginning, like that uh, intelligence uh, should not be something that really hard code uh, uh, into some system, but, uh, but maybe it should be actually something that uh, kind of like emerges in, in the system kind of like on its own, like uh, I'd say that intelligence is very closely tied to to memory, but once you start uh, thinking about the memory, and I actually did uh, think about it a lot because that's what the recurrent networks are about and these uh, stake RNNs and, uh, and whatever. But once you start thinking about the memory, then then you realize that actually what we remember is, uh, is also learned in some way. It's not like that uh, we have some video camera recorder or something that uh, just, uh, that just records all the pixels that we did see in our, uh, in our lifetimes and just sequentially stores it somewhere. That's not the case, actually. A uh, simple example, like uh, just imagine that you uh, talk with someone in English, like uh, as we do now, uh, how much do you remember about like uh, the content, uh, what you hear and how much you would remember if, would be, if I would be talking actually in, uh, in Czech. Uh, well, you, you don't, uh, I assume you don't understand Czech and uh, you would not really understand what I'm saying and you, you would remember much less also the amount of information that your ears would uh, receive is basically the same. Uh, that's just like uh, an example to, to show that uh, we really like uh, don't learn exactly the copies of the inputs uh, that we have but uh, but our memory is, uh, is much more complex than that and we even like uh, decide or learn uh, how to store the memory, how to form it and so on. So the memory and the intelligence, again, like uh, it's related. And uh, I think that uh, going back to these complex systems, that's kind of like a, 
almost like philosophical like a uh, way of thinking about uh, problems or not problems uh, maybe even uh, about ourselves or the universe uh, uh, where we actually see that if you start with uh, very simple things that interact somehow with each other and you iteratively update the system or evolve it in, uh, in other words uh, then suddenly you can start uh, observing in some of these systems uh, uh, interesting behavior that was not specified uh, in the beginning at all. Like uh, an example that's quite famous, uh, I'm sure you must have seen it, is a game of life. You can start with uh, some few very short basic rules and then you just iteratively uh, apply these rules again and again. And uh, and uh, if you start from the right conditions, then you can suddenly uh, start seeing some new things emerging uh, in, uh, in the game of life. And it's uh, exciting, maybe even more uh, visual examples are the fractals, like the Mandelbrot fractal. Like you can start with a very short computer program that doesn't literally like seem to contain pretty much anything uh, except few equations, and then suddenly you start observing this uh, uh, seemingly never never ending uh, uh, like amount of new patterns uh, um, and new shapes, and it's looking quite exciting when. And you think of uh, the universe maybe being kind of like this fractal or our life uh, or DNA or our language, uh, maybe everything that we observe uh, are around ourselves uh, um, is in, in a sense a byproduct of some evolution of some complex system. And uh, I think that that's a way how we can think of uh, artificial intelligence, like that instead of like trying to um, uh, optimize some objective function where the objective function is the intelligence and we try to maximize the intelligence or whatever. We try to maximize the prediction accuracy of our predictive model uh, or whatnot or some score in, in some games or chess uh, that's very that's been very popular uh, because there's been a lot of money from DeepMind going into this direction. Well, maybe we can actually think otherwise. Maybe uh, we shouldn't be uh, like uh, trying uh, so hard to push uh, uh, this objective function forward and to get intelligence this way, but uh, really maybe the memory and intelligence is a byproduct of uh, of evolution. If you set the the right conditions in the in the first place for the system so that it can actually evolve in interesting ways, uh, uh, and then maybe like uh, even like shape this direction of the evolution, maybe that would be a way how we can actually. Uh, um, obtain a system that would uh, develop on its own through this uh, spontaneous evolution some substructures that would actually correspond to what we uh, would normally call memory or even like uh, thinking intelligence and so on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. It seems to relate to uh, I. I had Ken Stanley on the podcast, and we were mm. talking about his research, um, which is kind of driven by this idea of open endedness. Sure. sure. Uh, and and again, so trying to like design some process which will yield intelligence versus building the mm. intelligence. Yeah. Yeah. So in the near term, like, what are the steps? What are some of like the broad steps that you see? Is it really trying to better interpret these simple rule-based systems, or is it trying to like bias the the process towards some interesting computations? Do you see some kind of near term? steps to start doing research in this area? Uh, yeah, well, actually, I have a couple of students who are doing the research in this area and who published some papers already and uh, are working on various projects. And uh, it would be uh, a bit difficult to work on what they are working at the moment. It is not published yet because of the obvious reasons. Uh, but uh, 
There are papers that we published uh, last year at the Artificial Life uh, Conference, for example, or even before that. Uh, and uh, we were like even like just trying to do uh, very basic uh, things about this open-endedness that we actually mentioned. Like if you have uh, various complex systems, uh, then uh, typically there are like uh, three uh, like broad categories that uh, you can see. Uh, you can like uh, you can distinguish. Uh, one is the category when actually these complex systems kind of like die out, so the activity in them uh, stops quickly or becomes very quickly boring, like periodic or whatever, and uh, there's nothing interesting uh, happening. Uh, well, the second category is when when these systems uh, become very quickly chaotic. So um, it's it's the very opposite, uh, but uh, in a sense close to the first category that uh, there doesn't seem to be anything new happening like uh, or in other words uh, so many new things are happening that everything gets overwritten immediately and uh, it's kind of like observing white noise uh, there's no structures appearing it doesn't look like a evolution that we see uh, around ourselves uh, evolution are, uh, around ourselves is creating new concepts new structures uh, and kind of like building on top of what was uh, evolved before and coming up with a bit new and new, more complex things. Uh, so that's actually the third category, which is kind of like this complex category. And uh, now the big question is like, uh, uh, and that's actually the, the category where we would uh, expect this open-endedness to be happening like that. Uh, there should be like this, uh, this category where new patterns are emerging and potentially forever. And now the question is where we can come up with some mathematical approaches uh, that can distinguish these categories. Uh, before it was done, for example, I don't know, like by Stephen Wolfram, who would just uh, uh, look at the different, for example, servo automata and just uh, decide that he thinks that this, this, this automaton is of this type and that automaton is of that type. It was basically manual classification. But if you want to do it uh, like uh, algorithmically, it's, uh, it's not uh, that obvious how to do it. You can use some, again, ideas from data compression, but uh, it's not clear because if you use data compression, then you will quickly find out that the chaotic automata have the largest uh, basically description length. Uh, um, so it's not clear how actually uh, the compression can be used in this uh, in this context. Uh, but then we did come up with, uh, with a couple of ideas that are described actually in the papers uh, that uh, are based on some rather simple mathematical concepts uh, and that can distinguish uh, these uh, interestingly behaving uh, automata from the chaotic uh, and the boring ones uh, quite well. So that's, that's a couple of papers that we published before. Yeah, well, yeah, it'll be exciting to see where this direction goes. It's, um, yeah, mm -hmm. it's exciting to see that you're going down this this mm -hmm. new direction. Yeah, maybe I can just say like, you know, on the high level, just to explain like, where it could be going. Like uh, once you have this, uh, Kind of like open-ended system that uh, creates new patterns uh, and uh, with increasing complexity and that uh, goes on forever then you can think of it as uh, kind of like having uh, some like artificial universe that evolves uh, indefinitely which uh, which is uh, cool on its own but uh, of course it's not really gonna be useful for anything uh, uh, on its own you have to uh, you have to do something about it so uh, like a very broad research question that is in front of us uh, is how do we actually control this evolution so that it will be going in such a direction that is going to be producing structures that are actually useful for something that is uh, th that we consider useful or at least interesting in our universe or somehow con uh, connect these uh, these artificial universes with uh, 
with uh, with uh, our kind of like real world as we call it and uh, and uh, control basically the the direction of the artificial evolution so that it produces uh, useful structures right yeah yeah this has been a, a fascinating conversation and there's two questions that um, I always end the thesis review with so the first is if you could think back to um, the the PhD process and if you had some kind of objective function, what would you say your objective function was during the PhD, and is it different now? Hmm. I think it's it's uh, different for many people. I don't know if you are asking about like whether it's different for me now. I wouldn't even say it's different uh, that much for me now because I was always uh, interested in like uh, seeing something exciting. Basically, when it comes to research, like uh, I want to see new things that are like uh, either fun or are like um, surprising or uh, useful in some unexpected way or new way. Uh, basically, I'm interested in this research novelty. Like uh, uh, we don't have anything that is close to artificial intelligence. I want to see artificial intelligence and the way how we can obtain artificial intelligence is to come up with new discoveries that are hopefully relevant uh, uh, to, to AI. And that's basically what, uh, what I find cool and what I'm excited about. And uh, I want to see some cool, new, surprising results that uh, I will enjoy. It's kind of like uh, with the jokes, you know, like uh, if you keep hearing the same joke uh, again and again, it's not funny quickly. Uh, so I want to hear new jokes. Uh, and that's uh, that's my expectations about research. I want to see new things. Uh, right, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then the last question is, um, if you could come up with one piece of advice for a new researcher, and it could even just be a useful heuristic or it could be some grand piece of advice. Mm, yeah, that's that's difficult because it really depends on the situation for the concrete person. I right. think that uh, like doing some crazy research uh, and so on while just not caring about what your PhD advisor is thinking or whatever, it's maybe not the best, uh, best uh, advice if you um, just... Uh, Want to want to uh, like uh, have some safe career and so on. So it really depends. Uh, but uh, from my point of view, what can, can I say? Like we only live once, and you can either like live uh, this safe, boring life, and you will just do what uh, what everybody else does, and you can be like this uh, this uh, mainstream researcher who just publishes incremental papers about boring things. Uh, while having a completely different life that uh, is important for you and just take research as a job, well, fine. But again, like we live just only once. And uh, if you will just spend all your life by doing boring things, then you will have a boring life and it's your choice. Uh, I would rather choose uh, something more exciting than that. And my advice so would be to try to do something uh, cool while you can, because uh, uh, if you think that you will start working on cool things when you will be uh, 50 years old, uh, then that's not going to be the case. You are the most creative uh, when you are young. So I would just say do it now and don't wait. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's that's great advice. And I think you're you're putting it into practice well. So it's been fascinating going back to hear about even how you got interested in this area, your work during the PhD, how it connected with uh, things like word to vac uh, and now this new direction that you're heading in. So... Thanks so much for taking the time to do this and for coming on the thesis review. Sure, sure.